Well, welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. I'm Jimmy Page. Today, we're going to talk about one of the hottest topics of our lifetime. That topic is medical or health freedom. And the big question we're going to be tackling today is this. Do human beings have a fundamental right to make personal health and medical decisions based upon their own assessment of the benefits, the risks, and the alternatives available free from coercion, threat, force, or loss of everyday freedoms? Our guest today is on the front lines of this fight for medical freedom, and her name is Leah Wilson. She's the co-founder and executive director of an, of an organization called Stand for Health Freedom. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's great to be here and talk with you today about what we do consider one of the most important issues of our time. So thank you. Yeah. And there's so many dimensions to this, right? And I think most people are paying attention, of course, because of the recent issues with the virus that came in with COVID-19. And of course, there's a lot of issues with medical and health freedom there. But let's go back a little bit and tell us a little bit about the origins of your interest in medical freedom going back to what you witnessed as an attorney and advocate for children in our foster care system. Yes. So it was five years ago now when our family decided to open our home back up for additional foster care placements. And at that point in time, we were told by the state of Indiana that we're no longer eligible. So my family, the Wilson family, no longer eligible to receive foster care placements in our home because of the vaccine status of my biological sons. And at that point in time, I knew that there had been no new law, no new regulation, no new science since my last foster care placement. So we went to the state all the way up the chain of command looking for answers. What's changed? Why now? Why do you say that these children who I knew were sleeping on the Department of Child Services office floor are better off there than in my safe and loving home. Wow. Um, and the only answer that we could come to was simply that there was a federal agency blackmailing the state agencies to snuff out additional vaccine hesitancy. So since Isaiah and Samuel in my home did not have all 79 doses of the CDC recommended vaccinations to attend school, then we were considered a threat to the health and the welfare of the foster kiddos. And at that point in time, I, you know, my husband and I looked at each other and we said, where do we go from here? It seems too big to fight and too big not to fight. <laughs> and um, yeah. we thought, you know, we have to do what we can to make sure that there's too much light for these bad policies to unnecessarily hurt people, to unnecessarily hurt the most vulnerable populations among us, foster children, the elderly, those who are financially destitute and what the last two and a half years have shown us because we started Stand for Health Freedom well before the pandemic. And then we grew to about 100,000 people taking action pre-pandemic and now we're over 550,000. So we're over half a million now, a few years later. But there's a recognition that it's not just the foster kids that are hurt by bad policies, yeah. bad public health policies. It's mm. every child who is subject to prolonged masking. Mm. It's the kids who believe that their germs might be the cause of death to their grandparent, to all those children who are sleeping in financially and spiritually destitute homes right now and the masses of adolescents who are suffering with suicidal yeah. thoughts and depression and 
So we have a lot of work to do as a community to recognize these issues that affect these types of things and co-create what is a more sustainable democratic republic for our children and grandchildren. And all those things might sound uh, ambitious and aspirational, but there are things that we do day in and day out to co-create our um, cultural norms, which then affect policy, which ultimately affect people. And that's why we care. That's why we care about these policies is because we care about people. It's amazing. And, you know, the fact that it hits you so close to home, you know, when you're trying to do something that is going to absolutely benefit children who are in really rough and compromised situations, and you find out you can't do it because of, of a one size fits all. In fact, one size fits all medical policy you even say that the biggest threat to child welfare is this one size fits all approach to medicine. It's this one size fits all to mandates. Tell us about that. So there's a recognition. If, if you have heard of the 1986 act, Hmm. this law passed in 1986 under the Reagan administration because the pharmaceutical manufacturers were lobbying Congress saying we are being sued for large dollar amounts too many times for harm and death from DTaP, polio, um, these childhood vaccinations. They said, okay, U.S. government, if you don't protect us from liability, then we're not going to fill your vaccine program anymore. We're not going to make these products for your vaccine program. Mm. So they wrote that law, signed the law. And what part of what it says is that vaccines can and do cause harm, you know? So there's a recognition that they do cause harm. The question is, we don't know to who. And when you're looking at for the greater good, a policy that says, yes, we will treat all people the same at the cost of some, that's that's detrimental to a community because a community is made up of a whole bunch of individuals. Mm. And when you look at the widespread one size fits all, we're not talking about one to five shots or even the 12 shots that our grandparents got the 12 doses. We're not talking about that across a child's lifetime at this today, as we speak, we're talking about 79 doses. And with the addition of COVID to the childhood schedule, we could add as many as 18 or 19 doses to that schedule of already 79, which what are the factors? You yeah. know, who who pays the price? And uh, I know as a mother that my sons, as a sibling set, I can't treat them with one size fits all. That's you know, right. something that is good for one might not be great for the other. The way mm-hmm. that one responds to certain communication might not be great for the other. True. And I, so it's blind and it's unethical to say that the global population of children can fit into a one size fits all solution. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's amazing about that, too, is that the negative effects from one child to the next could be catastrophic. I mean, we're not talking about necessarily small negative effects. And that's why even my wife was very involved with the vaccine schedule. She was very uh, involved with our pediatrician as they were trying to put us through the same, you know, mandatory schedule. And we made a ton of modifications to that. Since then, we've met a lot of people that have completely opted out of the vaccine schedule uh, for health reasons. Um, But I think that's becoming more and more difficult, right? I think one of the things I'm most attracted to about Stand for Health Freedom is this. Your mission is to protect informed consent in medical care for individuals and families um, by helping them engage in political process and policy. But most, let me focus in on that protecting informed consent piece. What does it mean 
to have informed consent? What's necessary for there to be informed consent? Well, first of all, you have to have access to information, which we have all seen a suppression of information over the last couple of years in ways that are completely unprecedented. We saw this with our co-founder, Sayer G, GreenMedInfo.com. His organization went under major attack well before pandemic times. Mm-hmm. Um, PayPal even took him off one of the first accounts to be affected saying you can no longer take payments. MailChimp as an email service provider took him down because the CDC Foundation invested. And in, so the CDC Foundation is the investing arm of the CDC and they put $100 million into MailChimp to say, if you don't support the, va- the government's vaccine policies, then you can't communicate through our system. Wow. So they lost access to their list of 400,000 overnight. So the suppression of information is critical because informed consent cannot exist with suppression of information. When you're looking at people's individual choice, the solution is more information when there are questions. If the population has questions, then we want more information, not less information. So if Mm. you have capacity, you know, you have the mental capacity, you are of age, you have a proper understanding Um, and then you have the information that's necessary. And then oftentimes practically that looks like walking into a provider's office that you trust and saying, what are my options? Okay. If I don't like that option, what's my next option? What if I don't like option A or B what's option C? And then being able to say, this is the one I choose without it changing your care. Hmm. So how many people do you know that walked into a hospital, in the last couple of years who reported their vaccine status and then were treated in a different way? Or how many people do you know who went to a pediatrician's office and did not want to participate in all 79 doses for their child and was dismissed as a patient? That's not informed consent. Because if your access to care changes based on option ABC that you choose, then we don't have informed consent. So we have to have capacity, access to information, the options, and then no repercussion for the option mm-hmm. that you choose. And that's, that's voluntary. Right. You know, that's the voluntary right. part of informed consent. And it's worth fighting for. The crazy thing is mm-hmm. our team and I was just discussing this um, last week. We were in Tampa having our 2023 strategic planning meetings. Mm-hmm. And our policy analyst said, you know, the legal world references informed consent as a new legal idea, mm-hmm. even though it's a foundational medical ethic. You know, in the medical ethics world, this is foundational, but yet in legal terms, it's only been a handful of decades that it's been acknowledged in the court of law. Mm, And, you know, we just have a lot of work to do as it relates to revisiting history and revisiting what it looks like to first do no harm and Mm. to support the health and welfare of an individual, which then allows us to create healthy communities. That's amazing. You know, it's funny. I was thinking as you were talking about this silencing, you know, that doctors, part of the problem is doctors are being threatened, right? I mean, I know, I know doctors, we've heard from dozens and dozens of doctors. We've heard reports beyond that. We've seen experts become silenced, canceled, demonized, put on the, you know, the dirty dozen list of those that are promoting the most misinformation or most disinformation. And it has this chilling effect, right? Even the trend of of silencing people with dissenting opinions about the CDC's own system for reporting vaccine adverse events, the VAERS system, 
and the demonizing of anyone who would suggest that you could have early treatment options. I mean, I don't want to get too far into the treatment of COVID because that's not that's only a piece of this. But this idea that you could silence physicians who are actually paid to find solutions uh, to be creative, to look at repurposed drugs to fight different illnesses. Every one of us should be concerned about what's happening to our physician community, shouldn't we? What's happened to the art of medicine? You know, does it exist anymore? It's turned into um, an algorithm. You know, it's it's the protocols of diagnosis in, protocol out, and deviating from that completely wrecks the quality metrics that insurance payers give these providers. And if how, what percentage of our providers are functioning now under a hospital system or a big conglomerate? And if they lose their their scores from these insurance companies, they're at risk for losing their job, yeah, you know? Right. And so they're in the same position that we are in terms yeah. of making these hard decisions and being able to practice their art in the way that they were trained to do if they were, depending on what decade they were trained in. You know, you talk to some who... Yeah recall medical school and the dramatic difference between now and medical school. And then there are others, I think, that have come up in this era that all they know is the algorithmic medicine and the art has been lost, especially when it comes to observation of patients. You know, what does this specific patient need? What are they um, responding to? The, The wave of stories that we're hearing now from vaccinated advocates saying, you know, vaccinated, new type one diabetes diagnosis, vaccinated, new tachycardia diagnosis, and all of these heart things And the vaccine status is not even mentioned. Yeah. It's like, what are our physicians? What are, what are they observing when it comes to the patient in front of them with onset of symptoms and recent events? Um, Mm -hmm. So the new California law, that says you can lose your license for spreading the misinformation, malinformation, disinformation, we call it MDM, you know, (laughs) is extremely, it's extremely dangerous precedent because these physicians need to be able to put their patient first. And that doctor patient relationship is an intimate private relationship that serves the well-being of the human in front of them. And we need to keep it that way. Of course, licensing agencies, why were they initiated? Doesn't matter. However, the primary purpose is to protect that relationship and to protect the integrity of medical care. Yes. And I want to know that when I go to to my doctor, my primary care doc or a specialist, I want to know that they have my best interests at heart, that they're evaluating my entire health situation. With my kids, I want to make sure that they're looking out for all of the things that they already know about my my 19-year-old daughter or my 25-year-old son or or my six-year-old. You know, I want to make sure that they're acting in our best interest. And if they're being strong-armed or threatened, it puts that at risk. So let me let me put it this way. We we have a definition, a working definition of medical freedom. This is how we define it. And I want you to sound off on each component. I'll pull them out for you because I know that we share the same values on this. But we define medical freedom this way, that it's a fundamental human right of all human beings to make personal health decisions based upon their own assessment of the benefits, risks, and alternatives available, free from coercion, threat, force, or loss of everyday freedoms. Talk first about that first part, fundamental right of all human beings. Where do our rights come from? Why does this matter? 
when you're looking at these fundamental rights, it starts with God given. You know, what do you enter this world with? It's not even, I mean, we, the people are the ones who created the government. You know, we ceded part of our God-given power to the government for a benefit, a specific benefit. And then that state government, the several states, then gave power to the federal government. And so these rights are inherent, that they were born. This is not something we gave up when we instituted our government systems within the United States of America. Um, And so fundamentally, yes, you're born with them. And then there's another layer of constitutionally protected. And when you look at the constitution, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the foundation of that. And when you talk about life and how you survive, you know, this is our health decisions are the essence of survival, the essence of life and death, choosing how we live, choosing how we die, choosing what risks are worth it to us and what aren't, you know, I've heard people talk about, um, certain risky medical care and it's their only option. And so mm-hmm. then the second question is, what does it look like to do nothing? Yes. You know what I mean? And that's, that's our choice is which risk would you rather incur the risk of the medical and the experimental medical intervention or the risk of doing nothing, which that only a patient can decide that within their own right, within their own sovereignty. Mm. And so that word sovereignty is interesting because it doesn't mean a lot, you know, with, with the level of understanding that many listeners have, it's just, it goes in one ear and out the other. Like, how does that apply to my everyday life? But when you yeah. think about entering this world with certain freedoms intact, then you yeah. start to understand the sovereignty, which is the same way with our states right now. That's why these yes. policies at the state level matter so much because yes. you get further and further away from home, the more arms reach these policymakers are, the less the individual is considered. So, you're born into yeah. your family, yeah. that sovereign unit, and then we have our sovereign state, and then we have our sovereign country who should be free from intrusion mm-hmm. from things like the WHO. So yeah. Um, yes. I think the fundamental part of that starts with what power have we given and what power have we not, which also mm-hmm. comes through what we co-create day in and day out, what we accept as a cultural norm for ourselves yes. and for our future generations. Well, it's amazing. You know, I think most people undervalue and are and are willing to give up essential freedoms and liberties in pursuit of the greater good, which, by the way, on the face of it, that sounds good, right? Hey, make a decision to protect someone else. I, I get that. But when that decision has nothing to do with protecting someone else, and when that decision could be very harmful to me, that decision can't be mandated. And that's, I think, one of these fundamental God-given rights. That's why it matters where our rights come to us, because it's they're not given by government. In fact, government is there to protect our rights, to secure those rights. It's a very limited function. But so many people are willing to give up their essential God-given rights, and that's a big concern. But let's talk about, you know, let's talk a little bit more about, you've talked about informed consent. Let's talk about free from coercion, threat, force or loss of everyday freedoms. This idea that freedom is greater than force. Why is this decision-making process about our health decisions so important that we're not coerced, that we're not threatened? We've heard over and over again that, you know, it's okay that workplaces are requiring something to stay. They're requiring that you participate in a pharmaceutical intervention because you get to choose whether you stay or whether you leave. It's not force. But coercion 
is on the spectrum of force. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not free from force if there is coercion. Coercion meaning you've worked here for 25 years, you have your 401k here, all of your benefits, you have a disabled child who relies upon these benefits, and then you want to say, oh, you're free to choose. Right. But there's a lack of recognition of coercion being on the spectrum of force. And the that's how it has affected people day to day that we hear from continually and, and educational institutions too. You know, you've put $120,000 into a four-year degree to date yes. and you're at risk for having to leave that institution because yes. of a medical decision. And what does that look like with force and coercion? And then when you look at the larger scale, these vaccine passport type programs, there's a there's a keyword, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called do to do. So yes, you're free. You can do whatever you want as long as you do this. So you can attend the movie at the local movie theater if you do what you have to to get there. You know what I mean? So it's like do to do is wow. the crux of the vaccine pa- vaccine passport programs. And these do to do programs have been being piloted in the state of Illinois. They've rolled out across 19 other major municipalities through these phone passports, which aren't, you know, they're not necessarily governed by the state. So what do we do? I mean, is yep. it wrong? Are people voluntarily participating when it comes yep. to this? But what if they're government sponsored? What if they're government sanctioned? What if the companies using them have any tax benefit? What if um, it becomes so pervasive that there's no mm. other option but to participate? Right. And right. that's the, so it's this coercion and force. It's yes. we need to stay far away from that line of mm. it even being on the spectrum of force if we have human rights, if we have the welfare of children in mind, then yeah. we need to, as a society say, we're staying far away from that line. We're not going to call it under the facade of voluntary or privilege or mm. um, options, but say, no, we're not going to push people into a single for-profit option when it comes to the care of their own body. Yeah, it's amazing because you you were just saying that our freedoms are conditional. It's like, yeah, you're free to do that, but you have to meet these requirements. And all of these requirements uh, would could require you to violate your own values or or make decisions that are not inherently in your best interest. And we saw that throughout the last two years, right, where whole cities would shut down if you weren't vaccinated. You couldn't go to restaurants. You couldn't travel on mass transit. Um, and then all of the mandates surrounding masks and all the rest of it. Um, that conditional freedom is what is a big problem, of course. And I know that you, you've you had a number of major campaigns to fight for health freedom. And then I, after this, I want to talk a little bit about the parents. But in 2019, you had a campaign in New Jersey. Tell us a little bit about that. And then let's go on to, after that, let's talk about your campaign to defund the WHO. Let's talk about the campaign in New Jersey first. What happened there? Yes. So we work in 30 different states right now on the ground, New Jersey being one of them. We have a state director there through Innovative Innovative Parenting New Jersey. Mm. And they called us in October of 2019 and said, 
hey, there's murmurings in the state house that they're going to remove religious exemptions for vaccination in New Jersey schools. Let's start educating. So we started educating people on this and got, I think it was around 5,000 people looped into the conversation and taking action to educate their own policymakers and their peers. Early December, this bill started, it dropped and it started to move. And mind you, in the state of New Jersey, there are 14 major pharmaceutical companies. So that's how that's the strength of the lobby there. And they had around 2% of their student population opting out of at least one dose of vaccination. So it's like, what's going on? Like, why are we chasing this 2% when we know that vaccine failure is around 10%? That's just primary vaccine failure. So there's more kids walking around out there who aren't protected under their standards than there are who are taking a religious exemption. So we just started educating on these things when it came to what makes scientific sense, what's common sense when it comes to parental rights and fundamental freedoms. You know, not only a fundamental right to education, but to care for our bodies in a way that's congruent with our relationship with the divine. And um, we released a call to action when that bill hit the floor and we had already had over 80,000 emails sent directly from constituent to policymaker. Amazing. It hit the floor and failed by two votes. Oh my gosh. And then we uh, helped our, our team then said, okay, they've amended the bill to say, okay, some private schools, if they meet certain preconditions, can provide the religious exemption. An automatic response with this team was, this makes it worse, not better. Like this is now not only unconstitutional, it's discriminatory that you're looking mm-hmm. at some private schools who have families that are wealthy enough to send their kids there and saying that we'll, we'll allow you to keep your freedoms intact. So that was our message. It's, this isn't better. This is worse. Now it's unconstitutional and discriminatory. And they brought it back to the floor, which friends, when you bring a bill to the floor, it means you have the votes. You don't bring bills to the floor in order to see them struck down. And once again, bill failed and it was, a people's victory. It was a, it was going to, we knew it was going to take a miracle for yeah. this to fail, but with the over 100,000 constituent commun- pieces of communication we had directly from voters policy, to the policymakers, um, it was loud and the people showed That's up amazing. on the ground there too. Amazing. You know, there were thousands of people on mm-hmm. the ground there and our state directors are calling saying, you know, I've been the only one in the halls of this state house for mm-hmm. decades and to see all of these people with us now it's that strength in Amazing. numbers and that's why we exist is to show yes. our strength in numbers to invite people into this conversation because there's harvard research that shows that a peaceful protest of three and a half percent or more cannot fail so mm-hmm. imagine we get from our over half million now to the 11 and a half million nationwide we cannot fail. And so it's speaking up and it's looping people into this conversation in a way that displays common sense and compassion. And um, that's the key because if we remain angry and confused, we're not inviting people into the conversation. That's right. It's, it's divisive. Yeah. And I think that's what we achieved on the ground and, you know, walking arms with our New Jersey partners was, staying common sense, staying Mm -hmm. invitational. There were people on the ground that day that fully vaccinate their children, but firmly believe in fundamental freedoms of Mm -hmm. religion and parental rights. 
It's amazing. You know, it's funny. You talk about how it went through different iterations, you know, different versions of this bill, and they paused it. It's what we're seeing all across the country, and in particular in California, for example, they have just absolutely unconstitutional, egregious legislation coming before their their votes. And it's there's an incredible resurgence of opposition where people are contesting it. And what we're seeing, though, is that our politicians will put a pause on it. OK, listen, we'll, we'll we'll consider more things. We'll make it under review. They wait until the dust settles and then they reintroduce it, hoping that we can't get the same amount of energy against it again. And then they'll pass this this garbage and they're doing it right. So that's why I'm really, really excited to hear that they, they basically did the same thing to you, but you were able to re-energize that group of people and contest it and win. It's pretty, it is miraculous, really. It is miraculous. And I think that when we first noticed as a board, as a founding board that Stanford Health Freedom was necessary, one of the huge reasons was there are these mama bears, there are these warriors who show up, they have common sense, they know when to be there, why to be there, how to speak to people, but they're being cast aside as fringe. There's yeah. a few people who do that. However, there are so many more people who care and we yes. are not fringe. We are a huge part of the population that wants yes. to make decisions for our children. I mean, it's a fundamental Western value that we care about the upbringing of our children. And we as parents want to be the ones, ones who are involved in those intimate decisions. So just showing our strength in numbers and empowering people to have a voice on it, even if mm. they can't show up on the ground and they don't know what to say and they don't know yeah. who to say it to or when to say it, that we are able to equip them with these tools to say, look, yeah. here's what's going on and here's what mm. you can do about it with the click of a button, share it with 10 friends because they can do something about it too. And I think that that one click of a button translates to hope and empowerment, which is yeah. much bigger than the action that was ever taken. Because yes. if we're no longer hiding under the kitchen table because we think we're powerless, then yeah. we wield this whole new power as a community when we decide to show up and use our voices. Yeah, that's right. And I think too, so the success of, of that New Jersey campaign is big and there's obviously more successes. One of your current campaigns is to defund the WHO. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Why does this matter? Why is it important? 